So we are glad to welcome Mike and Barb Spencer and their daughter, Katerine, today. Uh, Mike's going to be sharing with us this morning, and, and really as a longtime friend of our community, he needs no introduction for most of you. But for, the, for those who may not know him, Mike served as a pastor for several years, uh, over two decades, I believe, including pastoring this church body in particular. And uh, he's also a passionate and authoritative figure in the pro-life movement, most recently founding and uh, serving as president of Project Life Voice, a gospel-driven human rights organization that focuses um, on equipping and inspiring pro-life ambassadors to speak compellingly and to act sacrificially on behalf of the most vulnerable, most abandoned, and most oppressed among us, our pre-born neighbors targeted by elective abortion. So I know that I'm looking forward to hearing what Mike has to share. I know the rest of you are as well. Mike, we're thankful for the work that you do, and we're looking forward to hearing from you this morning. So can we welcome uh, Mike on up? It's good to be back, and um, I brought presents, artifacts for the museum, for the Church of the Lamb Museum, the proper name, the original name, the right name. I have the original Church of the Lamb pictorial directory. There are people in here that had hair back then and don't now. And um, I'm donating that to, who's the curator here of the museum? That'd be probably be Lon, where's Lon at? Lon, grab these items afterward before they get stolen. This is not actually a Church of the Lamb item, but it, 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 for practical purposes it is. This is the original, well, I don't know if the original, it's one of the Psalters from uh, the rescue days. Remember this? Guy, you remember this? And um, so um, you'll want to get that, take a look at that. But the thing that I've, I've enjoyed bringing the most this morning is um, this photograph. I have no idea where I got this. Uh, it's been in our attic, and I wanted to dump it, I mean, uh, 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 devote it, don uh, donate it to you. This is classic. We've got some who's who here. Dave Pildich, Dave Stevens, the Warrens. Um, I mean, there's just a whole slew of stars from uh, Church of the Lamb. And so that'll look good probably right here. Or maybe on the front of the pulpit would be better, but probably look good right there. Oh, yeah. Does that look good? Yeah, so anyways, I'll leave that there. But. So you can have fun with those items before you throw them in the, I mean, put them in the library. Um, and uh, so enjoy that. Well, I, it, it, I'm very glad to be with you this morning, and I'm speaking for Barb and for Catherine as well. We're glad to be with you today. I don't know how many of you saw back in um, August, I think it was the uh, tail end of August, when a story was reported that uh, the Canadian Armed Forces, or a Canadian Armed Forces veteran, I should say, who had been suffering from P PTSD as well as from a uh, traumatic um, brain injury, had called the Office of uh, Veteran Affairs there in Canada for help. He was struggling emotionally, um, and so he called, reached out to them for help. And employee, uh, the employee that answered the phone there um, offered him free MAID, that's medical assistance in dying, or also known as, we'll help you kill yourself. Okay, that's the service that they offered him. Now, not surprisingly, the veteran was quite offended and rather distraught by this, um, by this response uh, from the Canadian Armed Forces. 
his uh, family's reported in that story of having, having said that he had been making positive progress in his physical and mental rehabilitation and felt betrayed by an agency that had been tasked with assisting veterans. After fielding several complaints uh, from others who had called the Office of Affairs, um, they called the veteran to make an apology stating that they deeply regret what had transpired. So now, what was it that had transpired? What, for what were they actually apologizing for? Were they apologizing because they now deeply regret offering to help kill him? Or do they only regret the public outcry that their draconian offer had elicited? Our nation and Canada, of course, are on the fast track to normalizing and to legalizing euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. While most people, uh, at least most Americans, and I'm sure this would be true in Canada as well, remain rather uninterested in the subject. Um, but occasionally, a story like this one kind of leaks out and sort of pricks our collective conscience. And even those who um, might otherwise have sympathies for so-called mercy killing or for euthanasia, for legalizing euthanasia, find themselves uncomfortable with a story like this. Something about it doesn't seem right. Um, they're uncomfortable, but they're not sure why. This morning, I want to address the subject of, or the subjects of euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. Um, these are hot moral issues today. Uh, whereas uh, there was a time when people kind of universally in our land saw euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide as, self, as a selfish, you know, immoral act, now a growing number of Americans are, are seeing um, these, these actions as death with dignity or as a right to die. It's also a deeply personal issue. I'm sure even for some here, you've had loved ones um, that you've walked through the dying process and maybe were faced with difficult decisions in the hospital or in the nursing home or even in-home care. It's certainly a, mo a morally and culturally important subject. Um, William, uh, I'm sorry, not William, uh, Wesley, Wesley J. Smith points out that what's really threatened is our commitment, our national commitment to human exceptionalism. This idea that there's something unique about us, something special, something sacred about us. And of course, um, uh, this sets us above all of God's created order as, as human beings, that we are his image bearers, that we have been created with an intrinsic dignity and an inestimable worth. So now whether we accept as a nation or reject this once commitment that we had to human exceptionalism, is going to profoundly shape how we view and how we treat the vulnerable, the weak, um, those that are hurting, those that are suffering. The field of bioethics, at least mainstream bioethics, has largely abandoned the commitment to human exceptionalism, and their approach is much more utilitarian. They speak of undignified bioethics, rejecting a belief in the intrinsic dignity and the inestimable worth of human beings, um, and accusing you and I of speciesism for defending it. If that continue, if their, if their influence continues to erode uh, what is left, what little is left of our national commitment to the sacredness of human life, the whole house of cards is going to fall. We know that. In fact, we're seeing that, at least the early, early stages of that, we're seeing that now. The failure to recognize and to value the inestimable value of all human life is destroying our foundation for human rights. And if this continues, what we will have left is not um, human rights, but merely personal rights, the kind the state bestows on the uh, uh, favored classes and denies to the undesirables, to the handicapped, to the elderly, to those that are suffering, depressed, whatever. Um, 
this is a more, at least I think this, you may say it differently, I think this is a much more difficult subject to address. I don't mean from the pulpit here, I mean just in culture uh, than, than the subject of abortion is. Abortion tends to be pretty simple. Uh, the morality of it that being is pretty simple. This is a little more difficult. There's a little more nuance to it. There are principles that are very clear and very biblical, but applying those principles can be difficult at times for sure. The good news is that the more people learn about physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, the more they tend not to like it. Now, Wesley Smith, again, makes the point that um, Winning this in the ivory tower is probably not going to happen. In fact, that battle probably, realistically, has already been lost. But winning this discussion or winning this the debate, if you will, at a street level is certainly much more, um, much more doable. And um, we can win it in that regard. So just as our response to legalized abortion is a gospel issue, our response to the effort, the crusade to legalize, to normalize euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide uh, is also a gospel issue. And as the other side continues to push their culture of death agenda, it's important that we know how to defend this, how to articulate this. That is a defense of human life, both at the beginning of life um, with respect to the abortion battle, but also at the end of life. Um, so the question, I guess, really for us is how should we respond to the suicidal? How should we respond to those who are suffering? In other words, what does real compassion actually look like? I want to. What I want to do is I'm, I'm going to spend a few minutes walking us through just very quickly a couple of, of, of definitions. But then I want to walk us through sort of the slippery slope, which is probably more accurately described as a steep cliff than a slippery slope. But the slippery slope and some of the thinking that has brought us to this point. Then I want to talk about just briefly about five motivations that tend to motivate those who defend these practices. I want to then talk about two primary positions and then contrast that with our, with our Christian response. So that's where I want to go with this. Let me start with um, some definitions here. And this is, uh, of course, probably these definitions, I'm guessing, are relatively um, uh, foundational here, or I should say elementary here for most of you. But euthanasia comes from the Greek term, which means good death, so kind of the ultimate euphemism. Active euthanasia is the direct and intentional effort generally by a doctor to actively help kill a patient um, or to help a patient kill himself. Passive euthanasia is terminating treatment that has already been initiated, such as like a respirator or withholding treatment like CPR, um, causing the patient to die. And then involuntary euthanasia is, of course, killing without consent. I'll come back to that. But generally, to be considered physician-assisted suicide, the patient is required to self-administer to self a lethal drug um, in, in order in, in, or, to, or to conduct whatever action would terminate his or her life. Again, to quote Wesley Smith, he says, the practical distinctions, and I'll put this on the screen there for you, the practical distinctions between euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide are about as substantial as the differences between the actions of the left and the right leg in walking. One step naturally follows the other. And I think he's exactly right. So I'm gonna, you're going to hear me refer to euthanasia and to physician of suicide or just to euthanasia, but it's really, it, I'm packaging it all as one this morning. They're really, they really, for practical purposes, are the same thing, okay? Uh, think of it this way, physician-assisted suicide is sort of the, it, it kind of like what marijuana is to meth, it's the gateway drug, it's, the, it's sort of the gateway to legalizing all forms of euthanasia, that's really what this is. So terms like active uh, voluntary euthanasia, non-voluntary euthanasia, passive euthanasia, death with dying, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, dignity with uh, dying, uh, made, uh, these are confusing because frankly I think they're intended to be. 
they are nothing but clever euphemisms to justify killing. It's often said that whoever controls the language controls the culture, and that's certainly true. We saw that for 50 years and the years leading up to Roe. We saw that with respect to abortion, and we certainly um, see it with respect to euthanasia as well. It's also been said that a spoonful of sugar helps the hemlock go down, and I think that's well said. Just real quick, um, these are some of the words, just a smattering of, the, a sampling of the words that have been used or the euphemisms that have been used to justify abortion. Product of conception, women's rights, choice, reproductive justice, and so on and so forth. And you see similarities here with the euthanasia battle, where they refer to helping somebody kill themselves as right to die, as death with dignity, mercy killing, even happy release. I think, I, I think that that was actually Dawkins' phrase, although don't quote me on that, but I think that was Dawkins that came up with that. Um, all right, let's just very quickly, I want to walk us through sort of a modern history, if you will, an American modern history of legalized child killing, or I'm sorry, legalized killing, murder in general. Um, and this won't be exhaustive, and some of it is legal stuff or laws. Some of it that I'm going to show you is just more cultural things than movies. But just quickly, in 1906, and, and just let me say this. As early as the turn of the 20th century, many physicians and bioethicists had really largely gained control over a lot of our universities and a lot of our medical institutions. And so the euthanasia debate started to get a, a great deal of attention in the press as well as in political forums. In 1906, actually, the Iowa State Legislature introduced a bill to legalize abortion, not only for, the termini not only for termini Ill terminally ill adults, but for, quote, hideous hideously deformed or idiotic children. So that's, that's where, and I say that's where it started. That's not really where it started, even in the United States, but that was a noteworthy point. In 1973, and this was my introduction to euthanasia, I was 11 years old when the movie uh, Soylent Green came out. Now, I didn't see it until I was about 13 or 14 when it was on TV. How many have seen this? I'm just curious. Okay, it's a real creepy sort of a dystopian, futuristic thrill, thriller that actually uh, was was sort of taking place. It was, it, it was set in New York City in, in 2022. That's our year, right? And um, it's, it really is a creepy film. It's, it's kind of worth watching for its humorous value, if nothing else. But, and the acting was really, was really sub, subpar. Charlton Heston was in it. Um, it wasn't one of his better films as far as his acting skills. But um, in the film, uh, the, the world is massively over, overly populated. The, the greenhouse effect is choking people out. I mean, it's just humidity is sky high. It's AOC's worst nightmare. It's what's going to happen to us in, what, 10 more years? I think she said 12, and that was two years ago. And... Um, so anyways, in the film, the streets are so overpopulated that um, people are all eating the same food, and it's called Soylent Green. It's basically a White Castle burger, but it's green. It, that's what it looked like. It was a little square, a little thing, and um, so it's probably not a great commercial for White Castle, but, which I actually happen to like. Um, yeah, yeah. So... Um, if the, if the burgers come out green, definitely stay away from White Castle, but right now I think you're safe. Anyways, so people were all eating this product called Soylent Green because they couldn't, you know, a head of lettuce was 150 bucks and this kind of thing. Well, anyways, Charlton Heston, who plays Detective Thorne in the film, uh, starts to get suspicious and digs into this and discovers that what they're actually eating is human beings, that they've actually been rounding up people in these big pop overpopulated cities and taking them to this factory where their bodies are, where they're killed and their bodies are processed and they're actually eating themselves. And, but the, the scene that struck me, uh, it was toward the end of the film, um, his, um, Charlton Heston or Detective Thorne's uh, comrade, or it's almost like his, his father mentor kind of um, uh, uh, person, uh, 
decided he was going to kind of be the, uh, the considerate hero, that's the language of the euthanasists, uh, he was going to be the considerate hero and he was going to um, voluntarily uh, go to this center where he would take his life, where they would help him take his life. And so you see him on this gurney and they've got this screen and they've got Tchaikovsky, uh, Beethoven playing, beautiful, serene film with the deer and all this. And this was, like, he hadn't seen this since he was a child because the streets, you know, there was no forests left, right? And so he takes his own life. They give him this drink and he slowly disappears. And, and it's this, but even then, even though this is a kind of a creepy, almost kind of a Planet of the Apes, futuristic kind of a sci-fi thing, it was really a, a propaganda piece. It was already sort of paving the way for this kind of thinking, that we should get out of the way, that the elderly should get out of the way and make way for the younger generation, this kind of thing. And then in 1973, the same year, of course, we had Roe v. Wade, not technically um, uh, assisted suicide, or not assisted suicide, but, but certainly a, a eugenics kind of a thing here. And um, pro-lifers had been warning that um, the Supreme Court's, if the Supreme Court adopted a low, viewed, uh, low view of the unborn, that that would inevitably result in our nation adopting a low view of the born as well, and we've certainly seen that. Then, in 1976, California um, Governor Edmund Brown signed the California Natural Death um, Act into law, and California became the, the first state to grant terminally, so-called terminally ill persons the so-called right to die. In 1980, Derek Humphrey, so a name that might be familiar to some of you, kind of the founding father, if you will, of the modern-day um, uh, euthanasia movement, helped uh, co-found the Hemlock Society, a grassroots advocacy group uh, advocating for legalizing assisted suicide and euthanasia in general. 1980, Peter Singer writes this, seven years after Roe v. Wade, seven years after pro-lifers had warned that a low view of the court would result in a low, uh, a low view of the unborn by the court would result in a low view of the born as well. Here's what Singer wrote. Killing a defective infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Sometimes it is not wrong at all. Um, he was demonstrated against uh, in Germany, who has a, a, a little shorter memory, or I shouldn't say shorter, a longer memory, um, of their eugenics program. Okay, and then in 1989, Jack Kevorkian, I was living in Detroit at the time, and he was from Royal Oak, a suburb. In fact, Barb, lived in, Barb and I lived in, in Royal Oak, our first year of marriage. Jack Kevorkian, also known as Dr. Death, had invented his machine, you see it there, called Thanatron, um, which was a traveling death machine that he was actually taking to people's homes who were suicidal and hooking them up to this so that they could commit suicide themselves. So um, he was actually, he was providing a service for them to kill themselves, all right? And he had killed about 130 people uh, over several years. 70% of these were not terminally ill, and five of them were not ill at all. But what, was, but real, what really got national attention, inter international attention, is that on, uh, in September of 98, he filmed the murder of Tom Yoke. Tom Yoke was, was suffering with Lou Gehrig's disease. And he aired, he actually filmed his death, killing him in his home, and sent that to 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes broadcast that, his actual death. As a result, he was convicted and spent, um, I think it was eight or nine years in, in prison. He's dead now. Um, but that, so he was, and again, he was largely dismissed by, by the general population. Is this just kind of this ghoulish, kind of weird guy? And he was that for sure. But again, he was launching us forward in, in our thinking on this, right, as a culture. In, in 1990, um, Terry Schiavo, um, 
the story of Terry Schiavo had sparked a massive cultural debate over the quality of life versus the equality of life ethic. She was 26 years old. She had collapsed at home. She was deprived of oxygen for several minutes. Um, she was brain injured, severely brain injured. She was described by the media as being in a vegetative state, that she was brain dead. They described her as brain dead. Said that she was unresponsive and needing a respirator. None of that was true. Now, she was brain damaged, but none of that was true. The fact of the matter is, she just needed help with eating, okay? When I say just help, she needed other physical help as well, but I mean, she was not brain dead or anything like this. In 1998, her husband, Michael, petitioned the court of uh, Pinellas County to authorize her starvation and dehydration. Now, this got caught up for years in various court battles, um, but after those court battles ended, um, she was indeed starved to death by the courts, by her husband. She died in March of uh, 05 uh, after 13 days, after starving for 13 days. Nat Hentoff um, described the state-sanctioned murder of Terry Schiavo as the longest public execution in American history, and I think that was pretty apropos. In 2010, just a few more here. In 2010, the film came out starring Al Pacino, You Don't Know Jack. This was about Jack, um, uh, Jack Kevorkian. It was his story. Now, in the film, they portray him as this, yeah, quirky, but really lovable kind of a character. Kind of, you just, you know, kind of couldn't help but love the guy. Very principled, very lovable. And the Christians in the film were portrayed as cold and unfeeling, as we usually are. Not as we actually are, but as we are usually portrayed. Let me be clear about that. Um, in 2013, Alberto uh, Jubilini and Francesca Minerva, writing in the journal Medical of Ethics, their now infamous article, Afterbirth Abortion, why should, subtitled, Why Should the Baby Live? They wrote this, quote, we argue that when circumstances occur after birth, after birth, such that they would have justified abortion, not that anything after birth would justify abortion, what we call afterbirth abortion should be permissible. What they were arguing for was any reason that a mother would kill her baby in the womb should translate to her being able to legally kill her baby out of the womb. But keep in mind, what reasons are legal to kill a baby in the womb? Any reason or no reason at all. So if you push that to its logical conclusion, what they were actually arguing for was parents ought to be able, or at least mothers ought to be able to write to kill their children for any reason, okay? After they're born. In 2016, the film Me Before You came out. Barb and I watched this. This was a... Uh, uh, kind of portrayed or promoted, I should say, as a very romantic story, and it was that. In fact, it really kind of sucked you in. It really kind of seduced you in. It was a story of this man who becomes a quadriplegic, and this young gal, uh, uh, Lou, uh, is um, hired to take care of him, and she brings him out of his depression, and they fall in love, but the guy still wants to take his life. And she's the holdout, but she finally comes around to her senses that this is the right thing to do, and his life is taken, and you leave the theater, we didn't see it in the theater, but you, you, know, you leave the film looking at it and going, what in the world just happened here? You know, it, it was so despairing, but you can imagine how many of our you know, family and friends of ours, or, you know, people we work with, would see this film and go, yeah, that really is the loving thing to do. So films like this have had a huge impact. Others, Million Dollar Baby with Clint Eastwood, and what was her name? Swank, Hillary Swank, that's another example of that kind of thing, okay? It, by 2018, the Gallup, uh, Gallup poll showed that 72% of doctors, uh, I'm sorry, 72% of Americans said that doctors should be able to help terminally ill patients die. Now, interestingly, that number drops to 65% when the question raises, uh, when, when the question is raised using the, the phrase, commit suicide. Isn't that interesting? 
Now, while all of this, and again, this is just meant to, to be a quick handling of this, but all of this over these last 40, 50 years and, and plus has been transpiring while most of the church has remained silent. I mean, if the church is silent on abortion, I think it's even more silent on the subject of physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia. To be clear, um, oh, I'm sorry, physician-assisted suicide is now legal uh, as of 2022 in nine states as well as in Washington, D.C. Now, to be clear, ultimately, suicide activists are not fighting merely for the right to die. They are fighting for the doctor's right to kill. There can be no mistake about this. That's really what's, what the agenda is here. It is about granting people the right to be killed and granting doctors the legal right to do the killing, even without consent. Again, to quote Wesley J. Smith, I think my last time I'll quote him this morning, although I make no apologies for quoting him. He's brilliant. He said, in the, last day, in the last 30 years, Dutch doctors have expanded euthanasia practice exponentially, going from killing the terminally ill who ask for it to killing the chronically ill who ask for it, to killing the depressed who have no physical illness who ask for it, to killing newborn babies in their cribs because they have birth defects even though they could not possibly ask for it. You see, it's ultimately about abandonment of people in their greatest time of need. It is, it is creating a, a cast of killable people. Proponents promise protective safeguards. We hear this all the time. Those who advocate for legalizing euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide will promise that these protective safeguards are going to be put in place. They're going to govern the process, keep this all civil and orderly, and so on and so forth, and they never do. Denmark, Sweden, and Oregon have shown us that when killing is perceived as an appropriate response to the suffering, the dam breaks, and the line dividing the acceptable from the unacceptable is obliterated. Whatever safeguards were promised are quickly abandoned. Terry Schiavo, and this is no exaggeration, would have had more legal protection as a terrorist, a mass murderer, or an animal. I mean, under our laws. Just last week, if you saw this, just last week, Dutch Radio Worldwide reported that after a year of discussions, the Royal Dutch Medical Association has expanded the guidelines for euthanasia to include non-terminal conditions such as poor eyesight, fatigue, and loneliness. These are now qualified according to them, or they qualify according to them as unbearable suffering under the Euthanasia Act. All right, let me move on. I want to I share um, the, arguments that, uh, the arguments for euthanasia rest really on five misguided motivations, so I want to share these motivations. The first one is the belief that personal autonomy and independence is supreme. And, and this is not news to any of us. This is exactly what's driving the abortion debate, that my autonomy, my freedom over my body trumps everything else. This is the, this is the predominant guiding ethic, right? A radical individualism that elevates personal autonomy above every other value. This is an extension of my body, my choice. Now, this is also, uh, we, we also heard this thing, this ethic, if you will, um, uh, out of the lips of Camille Paglia, who said this, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claims to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Derek Humphrey, again, um, the author of Final Exit and the founder, not the founder, but kind of considered the, the godfather, if you will, of the, uh, of the um, euthanasia movement said this. He said, the right to choose to die when an advanced terminal or hopeless Ill illness is the ultimate civil liberty. And by the way, he helped kill his cancer-stricken wife, Jean. Okay? Another one would be fear. Another motor motivator is fear. 
we're uncertain what we would do in painful or seemingly hopeless circumstances. We, you know, maybe when I say we, maybe not you, but people fear this. It's like they want this as an option because they fear it themselves, what they would want to do or what, might, what they might uh, be inclined to do if they were suffering with some terrible disease or loneliness or whatever, right? Sympathy is another one. We're uncertain what we would do in painful or, I'm sorry, um, we hurt when others hurt, and we naturally desire to relieve their pain as well. And you can understand why this is a motivator. I mean, anybody that's got an ounce of sympathy in their, in their veins has seen loved ones die or friends die, and you've watched it maybe go for weeks, maybe months, maybe longer, and it's agonizing. Um, Isaac Asimov, um, uh, the former uh, president, I think I actually might be the actual president of the American Humanist Association, said this, no decent human being would allow an animal to suffer without putting it out of its misery. It is only to human beings that human beings are so cruel as to allow them to live on in pain, in hopelessness, in living death, without moving a muscle to help them. Can you see how seductive that would be to somebody who's not rooted in God's word? To somebody who, who thinks that we crawled out of a swamp 50 billion years ago and there's nothing beyond the grave, can you see how easy it would be for this culture to completely buy into this? And, and they, sadly, we're seeing that, aren't we? Fifthly, the argument from utility, arguing that euthanasia um, promotes the greatest good for the greatest number of people. This is the most moral option, right? The patient's suffering is ended. Um, the hospital staff, they don't have to suffer anymore. The medical staff doesn't have, you know, they can avoid the stress of watching someone die. Um, uh, family can get on with their living. Um, and you can think of so many other uh, uh, motivators under this one, that is. One of those would be rising health care costs, which are causing more and more people and insurance companies to put a price tag on human life. When helping kill people is now considered health care by so many Americans, we can certainly expect providers, health care providers and insurance companies, to be motivated by profits rather than to be motivated by health. That just, I mean, follow the money. It stands to reason, doesn't it? And it's no surprise then when this leads to an expanding, expanding class of candidates for uh, involuntary euthanasia as well. This discourages the incentive to find cures and treatments for illnesses. Dr. Gerard Nadal, the executive director of Children First Foundation, said this, this is an absolute descent into madness. We doctors spend close to 20 years of our adult lives in training, and for what? This? Medicine no longer seeks to better the human condition. It makes the problems go away by killing the patients. We don't need extensive education for this anymore. We simply need executioners. And this is what national health care will deliver, and he's right. Fifthly, a faulty distinction between biological life and biographical life. Now, you've, many of you are familiar with this. You've heard this in the abortion debate. This faulty distinction between biographical life and biological life. So biological life is just you're alive. So we hear this on campuses, right? Students will say, yes, I acknowledge that the unborn child is a human being. It's alive. It's growing. It's a little boy. It's a little girl. But it's not a person, right? So that's where they're shifting from acknowledging biological life to saying, but it's, it doesn't have a biographical life. And what they mean by that is it doesn't have its dream, its own dreams, aspirations, okay, goals. Uh, you know, it's not aware. These, this makes up, in, in their mind, one's biographical life. And the claim is that if you're, bi if you don't, if, well, the claim from the abortion crowd is if you don't yet have a biographical life, that you're not a person. In this case, if you've lost your biographical life, you're 75, 85 years old, you've got Alzheimer's, whatever, or you're mentally handicapped or whatever, okay, you've lost a biographical life and therefore you are no longer a valuable person, okay? You are a candidate not only for 
euthanasia, but for involuntary euthanasia, right? But I think this is interesting because if one's biographical life is gone, they've again got Alzheimer's perhaps or whatever, and only a body exists, then the question is, can we treat her like a corpse? Can we bury her alive? Can we experiment on her? Um, in his book, uh, in his great book, Disputes in Bioethics by Christopher Kazor, let me read just a short paragraph to you because I think he just very cleverly illustrates the problem here. He says, consider a woman in a hospital in a persistive, in a, in, I'm sorry, in a persistent vegetative state who will soon be dying. Just after midnight, a janitor enters her room and has sexual intercourse with her. Everyone recognizes that this woman would be wronged and her basic rights violated. Since, she, since it is always wrong to have sexual intercourse with someone without her consent. In other words, it is wrong to rape someone. But this intuition presupposes that she still has basic rights, that she is still someone who can be morally wronged. In other words, she still has value as a moral subject, despite her grave disability and imminent death. I think that's a winning argument. And I'm not saying that you share it with your pro-euthanasia friend, they're gonna be on their knees in sackcloth and ashes repenting of their view. But I think that's a compelling argument. We recognize as Christians that you have intrinsic moral worth and dignity until you die, that that should protect you, okay? Let me move on. Two basic pro-euthanasia, pro-assisted suicide positions, and you'll find these um, in, in greater uh, explanation in Jonathan Van Maren's book. Um, now I'm drawing a blank on the title of it. Well, just remember, Jonathan, it's, good, it's going to come up. The last slide, I, I'm going to sh I'll show you a few books if you want to do some further reading on it. It'll come up there. But Jonathan Van Maren is from the Center for Bioethical Reform in, Ca in Canada. Very sure. Do you guys know the name of that book? Thank you. Guide to, what is it? Guide to Discussing Dis Assisted Suicide. Yep, Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide. It's good to have you guys visiting today just for that reason alone. If, not for any other reason necessarily, but. Um, okay, so two primary views here. All right. First of all, three actually, but we're going to get we're going to deal with ours, the pro-life, the Christian view later separately here. So the the first position is called the split position. This is the uh, this is the position that says we give assistance to some people who want to kill themselves, kill themselves, and others we give prevention. Okay. So you can imagine you're you're working at a one eight hundred. You're you're answering the phone for a one eight hundred suicide hotline, and somebody calls in, and you've got to decide. Do we push them over the ledge or do we pull them back from the ledge? What do we do here? I mean, can you imagine the chaos, all right? Okay, um, so that's the question. If a man's ready to jump to his death, how do we know if we should push him or pull him? I don't know if you, any of you saw this story back in 2017. It's a beautiful picture. This is a man on a bridge in London in 2017 who was attempting to commit suicide. And these strangers, no, nobody that knew him, just strangers walking by saw this, and they grabbed him and took belts and ropes and tied him to the railing because they couldn't lift him over until uh, emergency, emergency uh, uh, medical uh, folks could get there, right? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's humanity at its best, isn't it? You, you, see, I mean, you see the horror of this, this young man or this man who wants to take his life, but then you see these people running to his rescue. Now, interestingly, and I, I just did this this week, I looked that story up again, I remembered it and I looked it up again, and it was described as, in the media and different stories as compassion, as heartwarming, as heroic, and as inspirational. But weren't they violating his autonomy? His autonomy said, my body, my choice. They robbed him of the opportunity of killing himself. I thought that was wrong. You see the problem here? 
If autonomy is so supreme, then why would we deny assistance, suicide assistance to anyone? Does anybody remember who this is for 20 points? Anybody know who that is? I know something that all of the people at Tech don't know. Do you have any idea what this is doing for my self-esteem this morning? <laughs> that is Brittany Maynard. Does that name ring a bell? Oh, I'm that much smarter than all of you? This is great. Let's close in prayer right now. I'm going to do this. Brittany Maynard, okay, was 29 years old, with a, with, diagnosed with an inoperable and terminal um, brain tumor. She was given six months to live. This was back in 2014. Actually, I think it was in 2013 when she was diagnosed. But she was given six months to live. She lived in California, but she moved to Oregon because she wanted to take her own life, and she wanted to do it under the Death with Dignity Act, the Legal Death with Dignity Act in Oregon. She did commit suicide later in um, November, November 1st of 2014. Now, if those of you who remember the story, she was lauded as a hero. She started a website, okay? She connected with... Uh, uh, now I'm forgetting the name. Um, the Hemlock Society, they changed their name. But was it Choices and Compassion or something? Compassion Choices, I forget. She, she connected with them. They started a website for her, okay? And all of this was toward the effort of using her story to uh, further advance this agenda, this pro-death agenda, right? Now, so many people were just, just celebrating that, you know, she's her own person. This is what she wants to do. My body, my choice, go for it. She was celebrated. After she died, again, she was lauded in the press for having, having the courage and the bravery to take her own life. Now, interestingly, just a few months earlier, this guy took his own life, Robin Williams. But the media called that a tragedy. Nobody celebrated that. He hung himself from the bathroom door in his home. He's one of my favorite actors. I mean, I love about every movie this guy was in. I just found him a, just a fascinating character. Okay, so I think it's tragic that he died. But I also think it's tragic that Brittany Maynard died. You see, if you, if, if you, if you subscribe to the split position this, you know, that says assistance for some, prevention for others, what do you do? What, why are you going to, are you going to tell Robin Williams that he had no right to commit suicide, that he was wrong in doing it? Wasn't he just as justified? Now, somebody might come along and say, but she had an inoperable brain tumor and he was physically healthy. Well, yeah, but remember, the safeguards don't mean anything. It's not just, this isn't something that they are arguing for just for those who have an inoperable brain tumor. Again, if autonomy is supreme, then who are we to judge anybody's decision? We should give them all assistance. Okay, which brings me, uh, well, let me actually, before I move to the second point. Now, most people that hold to the split position are not comfortable with this when they are challenged with the inequity of it, with the inequality of it, okay? So we've got to help them by asking them good questions, and, and these are some questions that Jonathan, Jonathan Van Maren brings out in his book. First of all, ask somebody this. What do you think about suicide? Now, almost everybody's going to say what? It's wrong. Yeah, we, sh we should do more to help, right? This kind of thing. Here's a follow-up question. Well, what do you think about assisted suicide? Now, you'll watch some of those same people go, Oh, well, yeah, that, yeah, okay. And here's another question then. So how do we decide who gets what? Who gets assistance and who gets prevention? Again, they're going to argue in many cases that it should be offered only to those who are suffering greatly, but if autonomy is supreme, why would we offer it only to those who are suffering greatly? What about those who are suffering mildly? This splits people into two classes, those who are protected and those who are unprotected, those we value and those we don't value. 
You see, Robin Williams' death was a tragedy because he entertained us. He was good for us. He was fun. Brittany Maynard, I don't know who she was. No loss. The split position isn't really about freedom or a right to die. It is about an underlying judgment or assumption that some people's lives aren't worth living and that they are indeed better off dead. This reveals a very ugly truth that with some we actually agree, yeah, you're better off dead and we'll help you do it. So that's the split position. Here's the total choice position. This is assistance for everyone, Brittany and Robin. We help them both, okay? The question, of course, though, is obvious. Should we ever try to prevent suicide? Is it ever a tragedy? People intuitively know that sometimes it is. So you're talking to somebody who supports euthanasia or legalizing euthanasia or assisted suicide. Trot out a teenager. You've heard Scott Klusendorf's trot out a toddler. Trot out a teenager. I've got a 14-year-old girl here. Her boyfriend just broke up with her. She thinks this is the end of the world. She cannot imagine a life beyond this relationship. She wants to kill herself. Should we help her? We all know intuitively that, of course, we shouldn't. Again, advocates are going to argue for minimal safeguards to ensure the person is of sound mind and so forth. But how do we tell the difference between someone who is of sound mind and someone who's needing psychological help? Isn't that subjective? Doesn't that open a can of worms? Of course it does. Don't we have a duty to protect people from themselves? Just because someone wants to die doesn't mean that we should help them do it. If a doctor amputates a man's leg, a man who is suffering from, from BIID, bodily integrity um, uh, identity disorder, and he wants his leg cut off, do we think that the doctor has done a good thing if he cuts the man's leg off? No, unless, of course, we support gender reassignment surgery, right? Because that's exactly what's happening there, isn't it? You see, in the end, physician-assisted suicide is just a sanitized way of reframing suicide. So when you hear assisted suicide or physician-assisted suicide, that might dress it up nice for the culture, but your, your red flag ought to go up. This is just another way of justifying suicide. That's what it is. Here's our response as Christians. And, and let, me, let me present this. Does the Bible have anything to say about euthanasia or about assisted suicide? Well, yes, actually, the death of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1 to 6. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. But in that story, Saul is in battle with the Philistines. He's mortally wounded. He begs his armor bearer to run him through, okay, to, take, to help him take his life, to assist him in his suicide. And when the armor bearer refuses to do this, Saul falls on his sword, and we read in 1 Samuel 31, verse 5, that Saul was dead, or at least that the armor bearer thought that Saul was dead, Okay. Now, this gets confusing because if you go to the next book, first to, to 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read there that when an Amalekite passed by Saul, Saul begged him to help him take his life, to help him kill himself. And according to the Amalekite, he did that. And in verse 10 of 2 Samuel chapter 1, we read this. I stood over him. This is his testimony to David. I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. So his motives were good, Right? Kind of like putting down your golden retriever, you know, that, that's incontinent, right? His motives were good. Now, it's possible that this detail was simply left out of the 1 Samuel chapter 31 passage or account, that when Saul did fall on his sword, he didn't actually die. And then the Amalekite came along and, and, and finished him off. Or it's possible that when Saul did fall on his sword, he did die, which means the Amalekite lied. Either way, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 14, David accepts his testimony as true and judges him for killing the Lord's anointed. Now, somebody might bring up, 
okay, that's not really a great argument against suicide because first of all, it's a narrative, and secondly, um, uh, the, the, the second point with that is that it's possible that David was judging the Amalekite not for assisting in suicide, but for assisting in suicide of the Lord's anointed, that that, that made it different. Okay, fine, but the, I think the Bible is, well, I say fine, I actually I don't buy that, uh, but the Bible is clear in so many other places um, that it is wrong to take uh, human life or the life of another human being without proper justification. Exodus 20, 13, thou shall not murder. So even if there's any ambiguity about what actually transpired in the, in the first and second Samuel account, the Bible is quite clear, thou shall not murder. Euthanasia and suicide are wrong because they are acts of murder. And we don't think that way when we think of suicide. We might think of it as a tragedy, but we don't tend to think of it as murder. It's murder because we don't have the right to take innocent human life. And when I say innocent, I'm not talking about being innocent uh, uh, before man's laws, okay? Or I'm just talking about being in innocent, not, not deserving this death, okay? Not having any, any biblical justification for this death, right? This is murder. It's just wrong. Now, I want to be sensitive here. I, I, I do, because I realize I have two uncles that committed suicide and left eight of my cousins and their, and, and, and their, their wives and eight of my cousins devastated. When I was 14 years old, a 15-year-old friend of mine committed suicide, and I watched his family struggle for years after that. So I want to be sensitive because I realize most of us in this room know somebody who has committed suicide. But this needs to be said. When we choose to take our own lives, when someone chooses to take their own life, they're actually siding with the abortionist. I know we don't think of it that way, but they're actually saying that I have a right to take this life. I know we see that differently, but I really think that they're, they're very, very similar. Now, let me give you five quick critiques here of this, of, of, of euthanasia, the Christian critique, if you will, of euthanasia and physician suicide. First of all, they reject our status as God's image bearers. As God's image bearers, we have an endowed dignity. It's not an attributed dignity that somebody else gives us or that we earn. It's an endowed dignity that flows from our nature and it remains with us as long as we continue to exist. We have an inestimable value because we are human. Jesus said it this way, you are worth more than many sparrows. Now I know that's not very popular on university campuses where we're being told that there's no moral distinction, no moral difference between a human being and an animal but we know intuitively that that's not true. You are worth more than many spirals. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He said, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. This assumes a godlike God -like status over our lives. It is murder and it exploits the very people that God calls us to advocate for. God promises to hold anyone who does this accountable. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we read, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed, for in the image of God has God made mankind. Isaac Asimov, I quoted him earlier as having said that no decent human being would allow an animal to suffer, but yet will we'll allow human beings to suffer in this way. Well, in response to that, the reason we don't take grandma out behind the shed or behind the barn and, and shoot her when she's suffering from Alzheimer's is because we recognize that she is more than a collection of her parts, that she has an intrinsic dignity about her as God's image bearers. It's precisely because we're not animals that we don't do that. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 says this, none of us lives for ourselves alone and none of us dies for ourselves alone. The person who commits suicide takes his own life and part of the lives of others too. There's nothing brave 
or dignified about running away from life's problems. And I'm not insensitive. I've had thoughts of suicide in my life. Now, I'm not suicidal. You don't have to call a 1-800 number on me. I mean, I think if the truth were known, probably most of us have at times have been in the throes of despair and thought, I, I just wish I could do myself in. But, but you don't because you realize you shouldn't. I mean, again, I don't mean to sound insensitive, but there's nothing brave or dignified about running away from life's problems. Real death with dignity isn't committing suicide, but learning to cope with life's pain and with the losses that naturally come as part of the dying process. Jonathan Van Maren said it this way, a society in which, I'm sorry, a society in which we kill some but protect others cannot claim to be a society in which everyone is treated equally. He's exactly right. This suicide, or, you know, euthanasia is the ultimate abandonment of the weak and the vulnerable and anyone who gets in the way of something that we want. It is always, suicidal despair is always the symptom of another unmet need. It is not the solution. The desire to die is oftentimes a cry for help and is frequently based on changing circumstances. Like abortion, and youth, like abortion, euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide are permanent solutions, and I'm putting that word in quote, permanent solutions to a temporary problem. Many who were once suicidal are now happy, now live happy lives, and are glad that somebody stepped in potentially uh, you know, to, to prevent them from doing it. So the guiding principle here is not merely minimizing suffer, suffering, but maximizing care. If the guiding ethic is to minimize suffering, well then euthanasia becomes a legitimate response. But the, the real guiding ethic or principle here is to maximize care. Rescuing those who are being led away to death, as Proverbs 24 tells us to do, is a human obligation. We are to prevent self-harm, not facilitate it. Fourthly, this fails to acknowledge that suffering can have a redemptive effect on our lives. And many of you, I'm sure, would say amen to this. I know many of you have suffered. All of us have suffered on some level. God promises that if we will trust him with our pain, whether that's emotional pain or physical pain, that if we will trust him with our pain, he will use it for our, for our good and for his glory. We read this in several verses. Let me just give you two. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 uh, to 4. We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, produ perseverance, character, and character hope. I mean, think about your own life. How much have you really grown spiritually when everything was going swimmingly well for you? Almost nobody grows through those times. We grow through heartache and disappointment and pain and suffering. And then we see in Psalm 119, verses 60, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. I mean, how many of us have been chastised, disciplined by the Lord, and we look back and thank God for it? Even Christ chose to suffer for a greater good. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, we're told in Hebrews. Isaiah 53, verse 10 says, it was the Lord's will to cause him, to cause Christ to suffer. The Christian, the professing Christian, who supports or who views euthanasia, as a merciful means of eliminating one's suffering, should ask himself or herself, would I have been justified as Christ's physician to inject him with a lethal dose of Nemutol prior to his crucifixion to relieve him of his suffering and pain? Any Christian who has just a basic understanding of, of theology would say, no, I would not have been justified. The guiding principle, again, or here, is to eliminate, when possible, to eliminate the suffering, not the sufferer, to kill the pain, not the person. 
When pain is under control, most people abandon thoughts of suicide. And good palliative care today makes it possible for most people, the vast majority of people who are even suffering greatly, to find great relief from their pain. So here's the conclusion. The pro-life position is prevention for everyone. You see, because we're not bigots and we don't discriminate. We don't look at one person like Brittany Mater and say, yeah, go for it, jump, and then grab Robin Williams and tie him up against the rails so he won't jump. We're not bigots. I love saying that, because I know we're portrayed that way all the time, right? In the media, Hollywood films, university campuses, a bunch of right-wing bigots stealing reproductive rights, waging a war on women, getting in the way of everything everybody else wants to do, right? But we're the ones who say everybody matters, that everybody should get prevention, that everyone should get love and support. We value all human life equally, and we work to provide hope for a better future. We don't discriminate based on arbitrary medical conditions, mental illness, or age. Suicide is not an individual right, but the ultimate self-harm. And our duty to the suicidal is not to affirm them, is not to affirm their despair, I should say, but to help them find meaning and value in their lives, even in the face of unavoidable suffering. And then, because death is a defeated enemy, it doesn't always have to be resisted. Ecclesiastes 3.2 says that there's a time to die, but that time belongs to God, not to us, to decide that. The there is a difference between refusing burdensome medical treatment and committing suicide. The pro-life position does not obligate us to prolong life at all costs. Barb's mom passed away uh, a few years ago in our home. She was 94 years old, got a severe brain bleed as a result of a fall. She was diagnosed it was terminal, and so she came to live with us for her last four and a half months, and it was, this, it was without a question the most painful four and a half months of our lives, but I kid you not when I tell you this, it was the sweetest time of our lives. It really was powerful. Barb and I many times since have, have reminisced on just what a powerful time that was in our lives to be able to care for this sweet, godly, frail, dying woman, and um, we didn't resist it. She didn't resist it. We kept her as comfortable as we could. And many of you have stories similar to ours. Um, this doesn't mean that we, you know, when Wilma, that was her name, when Wilma was in her final days, she stopped eating and drinking. She couldn't take anything. We didn't force it on her at that point. We didn't say to her at 94 years old when she fell and got this brain bleed, you gotta have the surgery. There's a time to let, us, to let people go and to let yourself go. Um, but again, the principle here is that, well, the, the ultimate guiding principle here is that we don't take life. We can let it go, but we don't cause it. So we, can eject, so we can reject extraordinary means of treatment, certain surgeries, respirators, whatever, that don't offer a reasonable hope of benefit, but only place an undue burden on the patient or on yourself. And we can actively target pain under certain, certain conditions, even if, if, if it results in shortening life. So one more guiding principle and we'll bring it to a close here. The proper judgment, according to Christopher Kazor, is not about whether the person is worthwhile, but whether or not the treatment is worthwhile. And I think that's a good, good guiding principle. And then here's some quick questions to ask yourself as you're going through this, maybe with loved ones, friends, whatever. The questions to ask are, is this treatment more burdensome than beneficial? Am I preserving life or merely prolonging death? Am I taking a life or simply allowing a natural death? If this patient could speak, what treatment would they choose or reject? Now again, that last one's a, it's a general 
good, generally it's a good question, but if you think that their answer would be that they would jump off a bridge, well, then ignore that last question, okay? But you get the idea here. These are just good questions, I think, for us to, to ponder as we go through these. Now, if you are interested in further study on this, here's some books that are marvelous. That top book, Culture of Death, by Wesley Smith is just phenomenal. Um, uh, Forced Exit, also that top center one there, is also by Wesley Smith, is very good. Disputes in Bioethics is great. Um, it's, it's not really dealing specifically with euthanasia, although he's got a chapter or two in there on that. It's more just dealing with bioethics in general. The um, Guide to Assisted Suicide is a skinny little book, but you can read it in an evening. And if you're Denny Lobb, you can read it in three minutes. But um, I hate him. Um, <laughs> by the way, I can't tell you how exciting it was to drive here this morning knowing Wendell wasn't going to be here. Because he usually sits over there and he swivels around and wears the carpet out and makes me a nervous wreck the whole time. And I thought, this is going to be good. And then as I got halfway here, I thought, I've got to pray. I've got to pray that Lob and Rapone won't be here either. So I prayed that they'd be sick this morning. And uh, here they are. But, but anyways, um, now I don't remember what I was saying. Oh, so that, that little one there on the bottom, your bottom left, I guess that would be, um, that's the one by Jonathan Van Maren. It's a skinny, Jonathan Van Maren. It's a skinny little read, easy read, very light, super practical, a great book. Now that last one, When Is It Right to Die by Johnny Erickson Tata, I think is a marvelous book. It's not so much an apologetic, although she certainly has that in there. It's a good pastoral, she's not a pastoral, but it's a good pastoral handling of the subject from one who has spent, what, 40 plus years in a wheelchair, I think it is, right? Something like that as a result of a, of a diving accident where she became quadriplegic. So um, those are just some sources that, resources that might, might be of value to you. So I hope this is helpful. It's an absolute joy to be with you, Pastor Josh. God bless. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, for coming and equipping us, arming us with this information, this food for for thought and reflection. I appreciate you and your time here with us this morning. Let's stand uh, together and just uh, say, uh, would you, if you'd agree with me in prayer. Father, we do thank you for Mike and for Barb and for the, the work and ministry that they are engaged in. Uh, thank you for blessing us and enriching us this morning through what Mike had to share. We ask that as we go out from here and as we contemplate these things that we that you would help help us give us hearts of compassion for the world around us for those around us who are suffering help us to not just uh, know the value of, uh, of the human lives around us but help us to actually illustrate show the value of those lives as we interact with people on a daily basis Help us, ourselves, and our family to trust you in suffering and to walk in obedience to your word. Help us to impart your love and grace to those around us. In Jesus' name. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Go and greet each other in love.